what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We have today with us uh, a special guest, uh, guest speaker, preacher, uh, teacher, and friend, uh, Dr. Steve Garber, who is uh, the president of the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. And Steve has done a lot of reflecting, really a lifetime of it, on this question of work and the intersection of faith and our work lives question of calling, vocation, and um, has done some writing and research and much teaching, um, but especially has this gift on mentoring people in this area of life and discipleship. I have personally benefited so much from Steve's uh, ministry, and again, not only his teaching, but his personal mentorship of me. Um, So many of you, if you've been with us for a long time hearing my teaching, uh, there's so much of what I say and how I think about the gospel and how it uh, infiltrates all of life and intersects with all of life. So much of that that has been shaped by Steve's ministry. And so I'm so grateful uh, for him and also his wife, Meg, who has joined us here uh, this moment, uh, for this morning, excuse me. Um, but it's good to have them here to share a little bit on this topic of work. And so as I invite Steve forward, can we all uh, welcome him with some applause? Thank you so much. It's a gift to be with you, Duke, and with your people here. So good morning to you all. Some of you I know, but most I don't. Um, I wish, given who I am, that it would be possible to take a walk with you sometime in the course of the next week or two or three just to hear more about who you are and what you do and why you do what you do. That was uh, pretty deep in my own sense of vocation, actually, to uh, spend time and listening to people. And so... A lot of what I think about this question of work and labor and vocation occupation grows out of the years of my life listening to people, and uh, I wish it was possible to listen to who you are. So let's pray together, okay? God in heaven, we do give ourselves to you and ask for your spirit to be upon us as we think together now about who you are and who we're to be and how we're to live in your world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Long time ago, I was teaching here in Washington, D.C., a program for university students coming into the city for a semester at a time, and we focused on responsibility for the public world for both sort of national and for international issues um, semester by semester. The curriculum was really a curriculum based upon what was going on in Washington. So sometimes it could be welfare reform, education reform, drug crisis. Sometimes it could be Israel in the Middle East. Sometimes it could be China or Latin. 
Latin America, it was really very attentive to the world curriculum, and we had about 40 students come semester by semester from all over the country to study with us. We often would take the students around the city to meet people who were working things out in these policy questions. And sometimes it took us to the State Department, sometimes to the White House, sometimes to Department of Education, sometimes to the Adams Morgan neighborhood and Christ House. If you know Christ House, they are a little uh, place for people who uh, have sort of run their course with hospital care in the city and the world and somehow need somebody still to care for them. And the Church of the Savior decided to buy a building there and to have doctors, nurses attend to people, live together actually with those who they were attending to. And we had class there one afternoon at the Christ House. And if you've ever walked through or driven down through the Adams Morgan neighborhood, you see the statue out front there of uh, a Christ kneeling into someone's life attending to somebody, but that was where we had class one day. This was the early 1990s, and I realize some of you weren't in Washington at the time. Maybe you weren't really thinking about these questions in that moment in American history, but I was involved in some of those things. And We were having supper afterwards at an Ethiopian restaurant around the corner uh, of Christ House, and we had a reservation at a certain time, and it wasn't quite that time yet, and so I walked across the street to a bookstore that I had long known about, but saw on the window of the store, a sign which was catching the moment of the world. You see, it was at that very, very time, the early 1990s, when the communist vision was imploding globally. It was Russia, you know, taking on its Russian identity again, and it was the various Soviet Union nations becoming their own nations one more time. It was Eastern and Central European nations becoming their own nations again. And the great question, of course, for the world was, what would happen with China? In the early 1990s, would China itself decide it no longer wanted to follow into that Marxist-Maoist vision and become its own people in a new way? Well, the sign in the window put it like this, Mao more than never. <laughs> Mao more than ever, really. Mao more than ever, you know. I walked in and I was looking around at the books and, you know, as I'm prone to do, I uh, at one point, asked the bookstore person, I said, tell me about the sign in the window. I've read a lot of Marxism, a lot of Mao's work. What's that mean, you know, watching the world fall apart in terms of this vision? What do you think about it all now? Um, the store was called, by the way, Revolution Books. It no longer exists there, but it was called Revolution Books. We talked for a while, and he told me his vision. He told me some of the dreams, of course, some of the frustrations he had. But also, <clears throat> I said back to him, you know, one of the things which I would wonder about to you is this. I've just been over at the Christ House around the corner, and you know a little bit about the neighborhood. You're here, of course, and there's the Christ House, which is a little hospital, a little center for healing, for health, for people. But there's also, you know, around the corner, there's a ministry which exists to speaking to the housing issues of the neighborhood. And there's a, a bookstore across the street, and there's a cafe, and there's an education center, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and they're all part of this little group of people called the Church of the Savior in this neighborhood. And a little wistfully, the person said to me, you know, they do good work here, don't they? Um, I said back to, back to her, you know, I just wonder, you know, whether you have to kill people like your vision to do good work in the world. Is that really the only way for it to happen? Do you have to somehow somehow decide, well, we need to get rid of them to get to the vision we want to get to someday? 
The clerk said to me, you ought to come back on Saturday and talk to the owner. He'd probably have better answers to your questions. Before I ever moved to Washington, I read a book by Elizabeth O'Connor. It's called Journey Inward, Journey Outward. Elizabeth O'Connor was probably the most visible, uh, known voice for the Church of the Savior all over the country. If you've never seen her work or read her work, I would commend it to you. It's uh, a book for people of all generations, really. Um, even years later, if you have ears to hear at Grace D.C. Meridian Hill, it'd be a great book, really, of framing a vision for being a church in the city, of being a church in a neighborhood, a journey inward, a journey outward at the very same time. It's not only a growing intimacy with God, of course, as it must be, with each other, as it must be, but somehow also a calling to take up a life in the neighborhood, in the city, and in the world. A journey inward and a journey outward. I've called today's sermon Common Grace for the Common Good. Common Grace for the Common Good. We have five children, and one of them is uh, a veterinarian. He studied uh, veterinary medicine in a school which was known for international development uh, expertise, and he decided that he wanted to pursue what's called zoonotics, which was a new, new, new word to me. I never had heard it before. He said, it's called zoonotics, Dad. And it's this place where animal health and human health and the environment all meet each other. And so some of the most complex diseases that plague us internationally are zoonotic diseases. And they are very, very difficult things to work out. And part of his study was for a year in India, in the south of India, in the state that's uh, called Kerala. Uh, And he spent a year studying what happens when humans and cows drink from the same water sources. It was an NIH grant that he was on. We visited him one Christmas time, and as I loved to do at Christmas, I had a wonderful copy of Dickens' A Christmas Carol with me to read aloud as we made our way through that part of India for the Christmas season. So here I am with Dickens on my lap, and we're driving through these streets of the south of India, and um, Kerala happens to be the one state in India and one place in the world, really, which has known for being the first democratically elected communist government. And so in every street of cities small and large, we would drive through and on the lamp posts, on the you know, electrical wires crossing streets, there were these banners in iconically red and gold paint with sickles and hammers calling all of us to remember, in fact, that it, there was this vision of Marx and of Lenin and of Mao that were shaping public life in Kerala. But many of these same cities, these same little villages, we saw iconically iconic acronyms where there was a debate between the Marxist and the Maoist visions of communist life. Who was right in the end? Was it Marx? Was it Mao? And uh, it was still a debate going on in Kerala a few years ago. As I was reading these, these words by Dickens about Scrooge and Tiny Tim and the Cratchit family and Scrooge, this you know, capitalist with no heart, and I found myself thinking a thought for the very first time, which has begun to run its way through me, through my mind for in the years since then, shaping a lot of how I wonder about the world. Have you ever thought about this reality, that Marx and Dickens were writing about the very same issue? 
in the very same city at the very same time? Think about it again. Marx wasn't writing in Moscow, if you had ever been thought otherwise, writing in London, actually, the British Museum. And a few blocks away, literally, Dickens was writing his stories about great expectations and about David Copperfield and about Oliver Twist and hard times and, and a Christmas care, perhaps most loved of all. What was Dickens writing about? About industrializing Europe in the mid-19th century. About the growing chasm that existed between those who had and those who did not have. We love his stories for the most part. We find ourselves smiling if we can get through the horrors of the awful night of Scrooge's life and thinking, yes, finally Christmas morning did come, really. And I'll buy that prize turkey for you and send it off to the Cratchit family. And, and Tiny Tim, of course, with his much-loved you know, whisper, and God bless us, everyone, really. And who doesn't smile with the story? Because it's a lovely, wonderful, rich story. But place it in tension with, in conversation with Marx, would you, for a moment? And think about Marx seeing the same things, feeling the same things, wondering about the very same things. And here's Marx, the, the political philosopher he was, with his pen writing Das Kapital, which seems in some ways a million miles from A Christmas Carol. But as I drove through these streets of Carol, I found myself thinking how ironic it was, how sobering it was, actually, how instructive it was to think about these two people writing about the very same thing at the very same time in the very same city. One of the observations I made in watching these streets and the flags with their sickles and and hammers was this. It just seemed to me a grief, really, to think that Marx and all of his flaws, fundamentally flawed as he was, and his flaws having tragic, tragic consequences for the rest of the world for the next century and a half, scores of millions being murdered all over the face of the earth in the name of his Marxist utopian vision. What did he get right? Well, at least this. You see, he celebrated the work of our hands with sickles and hammers quite literally, Graphically remembering, in fact, it's the stuff we do day by day that has meaning. Now, he had no story like you remember week by week, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It wasn't a story of God creating the world in a certain way, wrestling through the impact and the horror and the awfulness of the fall. He felt the fall, but he missed the meaning of the fall, really. His only redemptive Hope was that somehow we'd move beyond the alienation experienced by workers and those who owned the means of production, and he had no cross and resurrection actually to speak into the, a cosmic change of the human heart and a change for the whole of creation. No longer vision of a new heavens and a new earth, really, where right would be true, where justice would happen, where mercy would be shown, where in fact all would be well. His view of history actually was fundamentally flawed. His view of the human condition was a lie. What he got right, though, was this. And ironically, the materialist that he was, he got this right. There was almost eschatological hope in the work of our hands, in the sickles and the hammers of human experience, of ordinary people in ordinary places. It is literally true that driving through the streets of Kerala, I saw people with sickles in fields, people with hammers in shops, and I thought, 
We miss something, haven't we? The church of God in the world. The people of God in the world. Why is it, in fact, we don't celebrate this? Why don't we remember this very well? Why, in fact, as Duke has said, when we pray together for what God does in the world, we rightly pray for people who translate Bibles in New Guinea, people who plant churches in Kazakhstan, people who do the work of young life in the cities of the world. But we don't often pray for those who are butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, do we? We did today, and thank you, Duke, for doing that. But Mark's got that right. And so thinking back to my walking through Adams Morgan a long time ago now, and thinking, revolution now? Well, you've missed your moment, and the world really is judging this moment and saying, in fact, it's really done with. Mao more than ever? Well, no. I think when I look back on all of this, um, I see that the great grace, actually, of Dickens' work is to offer up a story of this hard-hearted man who does not see himself implicated in the world around, not responsible for the way the world is and ought to be, who somehow, because of the terrors of the night, this visit by three ghosts who take him back into his past, help him to see more clearly the present, and ponder it's his future, where he begins to see himself as implicated, as implicated, as implicated in the way the world is ought to be, as responsible for love's sake, for history. One of the great tutors to me has been a man named Václav Havel, a Central European playwright, becomes a prisoner, becomes the president of Czechoslovakia, finally the Czech Republic, pondering its future, knowing they've been victimized by the Nazis, by the communists as a people, horribly, horribly victimized as a people, but realizing if they only can hold on to their victimization, there's no future for the Czech people. He begins to give speeches all over the world, including here in Washington, where speech by speech by speech, he sets forth this vision. In fact, that the secret of man, as he puts it, is the secret of his responsibility. The secret of man is the secret of his responsibility. The very core of who we are as human beings is, in fact, we are responsible. We are able to respond. We are called, in fact, to step in to history. The text for this morning has been Jeremiah chapter 29. Seek the welfare of the city. Jeremiah is a fascinating character in the scriptures, isn't he? called the prophet of weeping. After the prophecy of Jeremiah, we have this strange book called Lamentations, which I have read and I've read and I've read it again, and I will keep reading it. And you know why? Because I find myself coming to the conclusion that even though I don't know who you are in this room today, if you were actually to walk by one by one by one around the room and you were willing to be honest with me and we were honest with each other for a while, we would just sort of scratch the surface of your arm or the arm of your heart and we could begin to talk about what is it that you lament today? What do you bring into the worship of God this morning that has been a lament for you this morning, yesterday, and this week, and this year of your life? What is it that you cry about, actually? What is the sorrow of your life and the grief of your life? Because 
doing what I do for a living, really. I'm in a lot of rooms with a lot of people. And it isn't always the case, in fact, that we're able to sit down and actually talk things through. But I have come to this sure conviction that if we do have that chance to do so, that, that everybody brings a sorrow. Everybody brings a disappointment. Everybody brings a heartache. Everybody brings a grief. And it's not just poetry. It is the reality of the fall having fallen upon us. Jeremiah, the prophet of weeping that he is. One of the best and the worst songs in the world that Christians sing. And I may offend you, I hope I don't actually. But it's called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Best and worst, well, obviously it's a very biblical story, isn't it? The words are Bible words themselves. From where? Lamentations, after all. The way we sing this song is not nearly like you sing your songs on Sunday morning here with a jazzy, almost bluesy sound to them. I've long wondered, could we have somebody who's gifted musically redo this song for us with the bluesy way it ought to be sung? Because, you see, we do need to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. But, you see, those words can't be abstracted. Because they come in a long line, actually, a horrible chapter, actually, of the worst things imaginable happening to a human being in the whole world. Awful, awful, horrible, horrible things happen. And Jeremiah is recounting them. Things beyond the imagination, actually. And then he plants his flag in the sand and he says, But great is your faithfulness. This is who Jeremiah is, the prophet of weeping. And as he speaks into the people of God's life in that moment of Israel, of, of history, hear it again. Know that these people have been taken away, made refugees in a land far away. They've been stolen away by the King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of that part of the world. And he takes Israel, takes its leaders away, its people away, its children away, and takes them to Babylon of all places. And it's that people in that place, God's people as refugees in Babylon, that the book Jeremiah is written to. It is a long letter, isn't it? And chapter 29 is its own version of this long letter. What are the words? Build houses. Plant trees. Plant gardens. Get married. Have children. Realize that, in fact, that... You won't prosper unless your city prospers. The word prosper, prosperity, welfare, however it's translated in your version of the Bible, is a good, good, rich, rich Hebrew word called shalom. So it really is seek the shalom of the city. You know, if we were to walk into the streets of Tel Aviv this morning and we were walking down past a shop somehow and you were able to speak in some kind of vernacular of the city itself, those who live and speak in contemporary Israel, and you knew enough to say, well, how are you? You wouldn't say, how are you? You'd say, mashlomka or mashlomek, which are male, female versions of the very same question. What is it? Simply, what is your shalom today? What is your shalom? Is the very easy expression, which probably means as much to most Israelis as how are you to us in our way of speaking. Do you ever really answer the question, how are you, from somebody? I don't usually, because I know they probably don't really mean it. You know? But I have a sense that somebody really wants to know who I am and how I'm doing, like Duke this morning. And I said, I hate days like this. 
The weather is just awful, really. Duke and I grew up in the same part of California, and I said, Duke, remember where we grew up? Ah, this is awful weather, really. You know? And I don't really like the end of summer either, really, so I was feeling kind of a groaning, like September 1 happened yesterday, and it really is summer's done now. How am I? Well, what is my shalom today? Shmashlom ka, Steve? You see, it's a good word. It gets at, what are you doing? How are you? What's your life like? And shalom really is a word which speaks to not just easily the word peace, as we sometimes translate it, but it is the wholeness of your life, all that you are, the conditions of your humanity, the conditions of your existence. How are you doing, really, politically, economically, educationally, socially? How are you doing at home? How are you doing in your neighborhood? How is life for you in the context of who you are and how you long to live? What is your shalom? Seek the shalom, the welfare, the peace, prosperity of your city. Some years ago, I was asked to speak for a weekend at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City on this theme of vocation. And I decided to bring something new to the weekend, and I spent a day in August reading through the book of Daniel for the very first time all the way through in one fell swoop. I had been raised by people who loved God and who taught me the story of lion's dens and all in all, and I had a respect for Daniel. But you know, for a lot of my life, I'd been very agnostic about the book at large. Why? Well, you kind of get the story of eating carrots and drinking water, and you know, and you kind of think through all that, what's it supposed to be like for us today, and you read about strange dreams and interpretations of dreams, and you know, and Daniel's courage and the lion's den and all those things, and it's as a narrative expression of you know what God does in the world with through particular people. It's a wonderful story, but you know, you get to chapter seven, and all of a sudden, it kind of goes way, way down. Because it enters into this mysterious, eschatological, perplexing story of Daniel's own dreams. And you wonder, what on earth is a goat with four horns doing in this story? I have no idea what that means, actually. And probably you don't either, you know. So to speak in very, very plainly and say, well, definitely it means the L.A. Times, you know. I think, I don't know, really. It's the government of Russia, you see. You know, I think, well, I don't know. I mean, do you really know that? You know. So I've been agnostic about the rest of the book for much of my life. And I finally thought, you know, I'm going to work my way through from beginning to end today. Because I want to take this story of the vocation of Daniel into the city of New York to these people at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Because what caught my interest in a brand new way was, in fact, this was a whole book devoted to the vocation of a human being. Now again, those first parts of the story, the first half of the story, maybe are easier for us. But you see, it's worth taking time to read the second half of the book, too. I could talk for hours about it. I'm going to cut to the chase right here and say this simply. In chapter 9... We have actually the record that Daniel is reading from chapter 29, as we call it, from Jeremiah. Now, look at yourself this afternoon if you want to. Daniel chapter 9, look at what's said there, what Daniel's reading about, the context of the story, the particulars, in fact, of what his revelation is there, what he's reading out of the text, out of the prophecy, the scroll of Jeremiah. And you realize, in fact, he's reading from chapter 29 as we call it today. It wasn't that, of course, in his own time. Isn't it fascinating to think about Daniel? 
the chief political counselor to three despots, three monarchical tyrants, three mercurial kings and emperors, people who ruled the universe as they saw it. Not really very good people, actually. People who on one day might say to you, yes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes, I'm with you, Daniel. And the very next day, throw him into a lion's den. And it goes up and down and up and down for the decades of Daniel's life. Awful, awful moments, actually, over the decades of his life. What's Daniel asked to do through all of that? You see, he is, maybe to put it a little crassly here, he's the David Gergen, really, of his own day, who gets drawn in administration by administration to be the chief political counselor time and time and time again. Why? His wisdom. Why? His winsomeness. Why? His brilliance. Why? His goodness. Why? His astuteness. Why? His skillfulness. And then what does he do? The best we can read here, it isn't all laid out, but if we read it carefully, I think we have to honestly say, what is he doing for most of his life? He's weighing in on agricultural policy. He's weighing in on building highways, on military strength, on water resources, on all the stuff, actually, that people who are in those kind of positions in the history of the world are always doing, into the stuff of life, the ordinary stuff of human life. That's what Daniel's doing, even as he is in and out of perplexity and mystery and eschatology and what on earth is going to happen in the future of the world and who am I supposed to be in this. I think, frankly, one of the best words in the whole book of Daniel, for those of us who live in our own now-but-not-yet experience of life, is the very last word in the very last chapter of Daniel. And it says, And Daniel was perplexed. You know, it does not have him end up in a rose garden, you know, when the sun is always shining and there's no awful humidity, you know. Um, it isn't really like that for Daniel. The very last word is, after I've heard all of these dreams, with my own very name on these dreams, I realize, God, you're speaking to me, but you know what? At the very end, I am perplexed. And Daniel was perplexed. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a cynic. But you know, I do want to be a realist. And I think, in fact, in the brokenness of this world, where there's so much of that that wearies us and that wears us down, that it's so hard to work out, actually. It's a good word to have Daniel being perplexed at the end. It helps me, actually, to keep going in my own life. Common grace for the common good. Well, it's not only a name of a congregation, but a song that changed the world. I could play off Bono for a little bit with you here. His song, wonderfully titled Grace, as he puts it in the song, it's not only the name of a girl, but of a thought that changed the world. A few years ago, a French journalist spent a year or two talking to Bono about himself and his history and his music and said to him at a certain point in this book, it's called Bono, Conversations With, um, says, Bono, what about the song Grace? Because you make a distinction there. You argue against karma. Why would you argue against karma? What's the problem with karma, Bono? In the song, if you don't know it very well at all, Bono, you know, it's a lovely, lovely, beautiful, beautiful song, really. But he does make an apologetic point, if you have ears to hear. He says it's more than karma. More than karma, karma. What is karma? 
Well, it's always the some version of, whether it is evolution of materialist karma, that we are our DNA first and last, whether it's Hindu karma, Buddhist karma. You see, there's some way of making sense of life which says, in fact, there's no way in and there's no way out. To remember another poetic line of Bono's, I'm stuck in a moment that I can't get out of. I'm just stuck. This is the way things are. And Bono argues, in fact, that grace is different because, you see, it transforms, it changes the way things might be otherwise. Grace, not only a name of a church, but of a thought that changed the world. It's all grace, really. We're saved by grace. We're justified by grace. We're sanctified by grace. There are very few absolutes as I read the world. But there's one that's very clear, universally true. It's all grace and it's all amazing. But the best theologians have distinguished between saving grace and common grace. And they do so for a very good reason. Most of life is not saving grace. Most of life is not the saving grace of God. Yet it is grace. It is the grace of God. Think it through with me for a moment. From beautiful summer evenings to crisp fall days, from the kisses of a lover to the hugs of a friend, from the pleasure of an imaginatively made supper to the delight of a creatively concocted dessert, from street street lights that order our travel to highways that are well-made, from plumbing that works to electrical grid systems that make all things possible, from just laws to just lawmakers, from gifted kindergarten teachers to able university professors, from wonderfully gifted filmmakers to amazingly talented dancers, from the first crocus of spring to the last mum of fall, and on and on and on. None of these save us from our sin. Do you hear that, brothers and sisters? None of these can save us from our sin. None of these can save us from our sin. They're not the saving grace of God. But all of these are gifts. All of these are graces, common graces for the common good. Two of the members of the board of the Washington Institute are good men. I wish they could be here with me today in some ways to incarnate what I'm talking about. But one his name is George Connors. And George is from Alabama a long time ago, came to Washington decades ago, and first of all sort of worked at a bank where his problems day by day were to make sure that the loans that got given out were to the right people in the right ways and counting the numbers and the dollars in the right ways to make sure the bank made its money that year. Over time, he's become the president of Washington First Bank. So here again, seek the welfare, seek the peace, prosperity, seek the shalom of your city. George is the president of Washington First Bank. They've got branches downtown, and, you know, George is an awfully good man who's kept his bank alive over the last four or five years of economic turmoil, which have made a lot of banks lose their way and their uh, place in the world. But his bank still is alive, and it's still doing good work. And George is not a philanthropist by training, by disposition, by vocation. He's actually a very astute businessman. What does he do? He makes sure at the end of the day, that in fact that the money that got given out this day, this week, is to be given out to the right people in the right way, that in fact somehow we have not lost our shirts, lost our way to be a business into the future because of the way we've done business today. 
He's not out there as a Christian to say, you know, come ask me for money, you know, and I don't really care who you are and what you do, but in fact, you know, Christians give money to Christians, and therefore, you know, I'm going to give you Christian dollars today. I hope you do Christian things with your my Christian dollars. That's not George's work, actually. He does all kinds of stuff for the city of Washington. What's impressed me over time in watching George at his labor is this. In fact, when people come to him with questions about sort of difficult issues in a city or of hopes for a particular block in a particular neighbor which has more need, perhaps, than, in fact, other banks are willing to step into, what George does actually is listens very carefully. So I've watched him over the years say... Let's talk this through very carefully. You know, there's a program like this that could actually address your question. We probably could do business together, but you know, let's get this down very, very, very carefully. Because I want this to be good for you and good for me too. It has to be good for both. Both of us have to flourish. There has to be the welfare of both of us in mind. Because you see, if we go out of business because you didn't actually come through on your loan, it won't be good for anybody. The chairman of his board is a long-time attorney in the city, been in banks for his whole life. And a few years ago, I asked George, George, I'm looking at the books here in the final report of the year, and where are our legal fees? George said, you know, we don't have any, actually. The chairman said, well, how could there be no legal fees? I mean, we always have legal fees in banks. I, I've never ever seen it before in my life. I mean, what do, you, what do you mean we have no legal fees? And George said, well, I talk to people instead. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I've determined, in fact, that it's not good for them or for us if we go to court. I could do that. There are a lot of lawyers who would make a lot of money on my behalf if we did that that way. But so sometimes I don't sleep at night very well. I get up very early sometimes in the morning. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think I'd rather try to pursue somebody to rethink the loan, to renegotiate the loan, to make sure that, in fact, this doesn't end up with you going bankrupt and us having lost the loan. It's a different way to imagine, in fact, doing business, really. He is no fool. He is very good at what he does. He doesn't give money away to fools. One of the people he's given money to, made a good loan to, is my friend Hans, who's the chairman of the board of the Washington Institute. You see Hans's handiwork around the city, the sickles and the hammers of Hans's work, actually. They're called EnviroCab. Maybe you've bought another product of his. It's called Elevation Burger. So Hans has been the imaginer, the creator of these two businesses in the city, Elevation Burger, which has at its tagline, Ingredients Matter. I don't know what Z Burger down the street does with that idea, you know, but I know that Five Guys isn't probably a very good idea for any of us anymore in this life. When you're 13 and you don't really care what you put in your body, maybe that's okay. But you get to be like I am and you put Five Guys in your stomach and you're sick for hours and hours to come. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But you know what? When I go to Hans to have a lunch with somebody, ingredients matter, natural fed meat, French fries fried in olive oil. I don't have to put a bottle of Tums in my stomach afterwards. You know, I, have to go to, I don't have to be sick. I actually go back to work and I don't think about it because you know what? Just finger to the wind, our theology and our economics ought to tell us, in fact, that there's a relationship between putting good food in your body and how you feel as a human being. So it isn't just poetry, it isn't just sort of high philosophy, or wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world like, but in fact it's really a good thing to put good food in your body. 
And so when Hans was first imagining this business, he went to George and said, I've got an idea. Well, you know what? Cafes and restaurants, eating establishments, almost the worst investments for a bank. Almost the worst place to put money if you're a banker. But there was some chemistry and some hope and some willingness, and they went into business together. And Hans has now sold about 180 franchises of his business all over the world. People are all over the world wanting better food to put in their bodies. It's a common grace for the common good, actually. Even like his cabs, Enviro cabs around the city, that beautiful paint job he imagined, but kind of a creamy, greeny, look, natural-looking, you know, organically, organic taxi cabs as he has them around the city. You know. They're not the Christian Enviro cab company. It's simply the Enviro cab company. I keep asking Hans, when are you going to learn to make a Christian hamburger, Hans? Because you see, a lot of times the church wants people who are in business to make Christian things, to do Christian things, to sort of name the Nicene Creed as a part of what you sell. We've had people from seminaries, good seminaries in America, come to take horses with us in the city. We've had them go to Hans's hamburger place, and they've asked, but where's the signage, Hans, that says you're a Christian here? I mean, you're kidding yourself. You're not a Christian, a serious Christian, Hans, because you've got ingredients matter, but where's John 3.16? Well, my question to you, dear people, is this. What's it mean to seek the welfare of the city? Is it really found in we put you know, fish symbols and John 3.16 signs in our stores? Does that really make us be Christian? I'm not persuaded, actually. We have five children. Two of them live in the city of Washington. One of them, Dale knows, and asked me when we were having our greeting, how's David doing? But David, for a long time, lived in Anacostia, and he created a website called And Now Anacostia, Just You Wait and See, was the tagline. He began to buy abandoned houses and work with the neighborhood and began to retell different stories. He said, you know, I no longer want Anacostia to be this place where people say, Why would you go to Anacostia? You know, He said, couldn't we tell a different story about actually people doing good things here, trying to make a different community here? And... So he began to be involved in this in that neighborhood in all kinds of imaginative and sort of playful, important ways, even literally taking up Jeremiah's words, plant trees. And he found this foundation in the city that somebody gave way, way too much money in their death. And there's millions of dollars actually in this foundation to protect the tree canopy of Washington, D.C. So one time he you know, found a way to walk through the neighborhood where he lived and uh, get buy-in from the neighbor, neighbors, and each person was, would, get a, it would get a good-sized tree for front yard and backyard in a place that had been devastated over time by neglect for all kinds of reasons. Um, I have a, another child, a daughter, Eden, who works for the Unity Health System, which is the district, the D.C. health system in the city, and she spends her days listening to the heartaches and the heart troubles of people who come into her clinic, and it's hard, hard work, really. And but as I watch what my kids are doing in the city, you know, you don't have to be a bank president or to be an entrepreneur with businesses around the world. You could actually be people who, you know, live in neighborhoods and who work in health clinics. And all of this, in the language which I think is worth us pondering, is common grace for the common good. What will this mean for you? My wife and I saw the latest version of Spider-Man on Friday night. It's finally come to the neighborhood theater, and it doesn't cost as much to go see it. And we went to see it, uh, take it in Friday evening, and 
Now, I'm not the biggest Spider-Man person in the whole world, but I have been intrigued by the first three in the early version of the Peter Parker stories, and now this newest one, which I saw just recently. On this question in particular, it'd be interesting for a group of people like you, given your demography, maybe even to take up sometime this fall, let's take up Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and the question of vocation. Let's even take the language common grace for the common good and ask the question of Spider-Man's story. So how does this get worked out in Spider-Man? Have you ever thought about that? So here's Peter Parker, and you know the story in various versions of it now, where he has an aunt and an uncle, and his parents have died, and, you know, and he's sure that he's not responsible for the neighborhood in which he lives. He's sure that, in fact, the stuff that goes on in the city isn't his to care about. He's not implicated, you see. I can brush it off because, you see, that's not really me. Quite explicitly, he says that himself. I don't have to care. It's not mine, you see. And then the stuff of life happens, and his own heart is tenderized, and somehow in the mystery and the wonder and the of the story. He's bitten by a spider that changes everything, actually. Um, but deeper in all of this is the transformation in Peter Parker's own life. He begins to see himself as responsible for the way things work out. Actually, for the welfare of his city. The very last lines of the film are this phone call from his uncle that he doesn't really hear at the right time and it has its own consequences. But finally, he listens to it. His uncle says this to him. Peter, I'm sorry for what happened earlier. I know things have been rough for you. I think I know what you're feeling. You've been going through a lot of difficult things with not having your father and all. Well, take it from an old man. Those things send us down a road. And I know that whatever road you'll end up on, you've got great things waiting for you, son. You owe the world your gifts. You just have to figure out how to use them. Whatever you decide, just know that that there are those who care about you. So come on home, Peter. You're my hero, and I love you. It's awfully tender, isn't it? The words are very good ones. Well, not many of us will be bitten by spiders that change us forever. Not many of us will find a story to create spandex costumes that protect us as we fly through the corridors of K Street and leap over and across with great bounces, Adams Morgan. That probably won't be true for most of us. But what is true is that we're responsible to be common grace for the common good, seeing our vocations in service to God and to history. In a certain sense, it's true. We owe the world our gifts. We have to figure out how to use them. And we're called to step into history. With the people of God all over the world this day, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. We live for that. Our common calling is to live into that prayer, having those words become flesh in your life and in mine. We're to seek the welfare of Washington, realizing that there's no well-being for us, no shalom for us without the shalom of the city. That's the way of God for the people of God in every century, every culture, every city. We're We're not romantics to believe that. Simply said, we are the children of Jeremiah, hearing the word of the Lord in our own time, in our own place.
So dear brothers and sisters, build houses, get married, have children, plant trees, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God, be creative, be hospitable, be adventurous, be responsible, be winsome, be serious. With gladness and singleness of heart, take up the vocations and occupations that are yours. And in and through it all, be common grace for the common good until he comes again. Amen. Thank you so much, Steve. What we want to do right now is turn our attention to communion. Uh, we're going to go straight in to the table. And one thing that I want to uh, ask you to consider for a moment is that this is ordinary bread.